back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus Lad, and lately I've been in kind of a Legion of Superheroes kind of mood. So what I've been doing uh, for, I guess since last week, obviously this week, and if I were a betting man, I would say probably next week as well, is reading not just Legion of Superheroes comics, but specifically the Five Years Later era of the Legion. And, well, pretty much, I mean, that's that's that. The uh, I, I would say that my love for the Five Years Later era is probably one of the worst kept secrets of this entire podcast I've released. I think at this point, it's it's got to be over 10, possibly as many as 15 episodes that relate either directly or indirectly to the five years later comics right so anyway so that pretty much that's that so uh just just because i i think of a natural preference on my part i love these comics but i i would say that these comics especially benefit from comparison basically guys if you've been paying attention at least to marvel comics i mean dc uh, ironically enough, I'm, I'm really not too sure about, but at least Marvel Comics these days, a lot of them are printed on these, these using this really cheap printing process if you're not careful, or for that matter, if you just know what you're doing and don't care. You can actually smudge the ink on the page of these comics these days that cost anywhere from, well, I, don't, I think these days the average cover price is $3.99. I'm, that's not that's not really based on anything other than my own suppositions, but I, I think I, I could have sworn that I read somewhere that the average cover price these days is $3.99. And it's not at all unusual to find comics that cost $4.99. And so there's that. But on top of that, they, there's there's a shit cover price. There's a shit printing process. In a lot of cases, you're actually getting less than 22 pages worth of story. It's just fucking. It, it's it's insane. All right. And I'm not trying to get all quarter bin podcast here or anything, especially since I don't think Professor Allen is necessarily as angry or visceral about this stuff as I am. But guys, just think about this for a minute. You go out and you buy a brand new comic book today. You could be spending $4.99 in order uh, just just to take it home, all right? And then from there, uh, you're not getting the full 22 pages worth of story that you're supposed to get, at least in some cases. And then on top of all that, at least if this is certain Marvel comics, the printing process is so fucking cheap that you can, like I say, you can actually rub the ink right off the freaking page. What the fuck? And it's like, on top of all that stuff, cheap printing, Less content overall, fucking sky-high cover price. How shall I put it without sounding like a dick? Uh, you know what, maybe the best, maybe, you know what, maybe I, uh, maybe I've said enough, you know. Uh, it's just, look, you've got these comics that are coming out these days that are just not a good bargain by any sane standard. They are just not a good bargain. You know, for all the reasons I've outlined, not to mention the fact that a lot of comics these days just fucking suck. As compared to back issues, which is, let's face it, that's Trennis Magnus Punches Reality's sort of bread and butter. I don't really talk a whole lot about new new stuff. 
I think the closest I've come to talking about new comics is when I've covered uh, the uh, DC Earth One series of, and not even very many of those. I think I covered Superman Earth One volume volumes one, two, and three, and then I think Batman Earth One volume one. I honestly don't think I covered volume two of for Batman. At least I don't think I did. But either way, my point is, even if it's you know whether it's just by empirical standards just these are objectively good comics when it comes to five years later or if it's by comparison no matter how you look at it i just get more satisfaction enjoyment and contentment out of these back issues than i do anything that's coming out these days so put that in your pipe and smoke it but anyway this turned into a bit of a rant when it wasn't really supposed to any guys i for those of you who don't know i just podcast and I just make it all up as I go along. So when I started recording, I had no idea that I was going to be saying all this. I, like I said, I just make it up as I go along. Uh, I've usually got a, a, a couple of bul- bullet points of whatever comic or movie or just fucking whatever I'm talking about. I've got a couple of bullet points usually that I want to hit. Otherwise, I just, well, extemporize, I suppose. So I guess this is what was lurking in the back of my subconscious because, again, when I started recording this just a few minutes ago, I had no idea that things were going to go in this direction. But what I want to talk about is, like I say, this is uh, Legion of Superheroes, Volume 4, Number 9. And guys, this is, uh, this is by any standard, I think a, a, a pretty special issue. And I'm going to get more into that in just a little while. But for right now, the, co- uh, the uh, credits are Tom and Mary Beerbaum, Story, Keith Giffen, Frame Pencils and Story Assist, uh, Paris Collins, Flashback Pencils, Bob Lewis, Inks, Todd Klein, Letterer, Tom McCraw, Colorist, Michael Yuri, Editor. The title of this story is Laurel's Story, and synopsis goes a little something-something like this. On Cygnus IV, Roxas watches a holovid on the history of Laurel Gand, the ninth member to join the Legion of Superheroes, and also one of the most famous Legionnaires of all. And the holovid is narrated by Laurel herself. Laurel explains that she's a distant descendant of Valor, also known as Largand, formerly known in the old continuity as Monel. And this guy is unquestionably Daxum's greatest hero. But she clarifies that she wasn't actually born on Daxum. Rather, she was born and grew up on Rickliff II, a domed space colony which floats around on the edge of Daxum's star system. She explains that life was pretty comfy there on Rickliff 2 until the day that the Coons came knocking. Laurel's mom tries to organize a defense, but unbeknownst to anybody, Coon assassins had already infiltrated Rickliff 2. Laurel's mom is shot to death in front of Laurel, and her father follows in pretty much short order. A lot of shifting tenses in this summary, I've noticed. Anyway, uh, the commandos lower Daxum's defenses so that the Coon fleet can wreck shop on everything, but luckily, Laurel's mom taught her how to use the system. And so, she's able to lock the commandos out, reactivate Daxum's defenses, and then decimates the majority of, uh, which then decimates the majority of the Kund Empire's fleet. Laurel estimates that maybe 10% of the initial invasion force was able to escape, which includes the tyrannical warlord Zaryon, I guess is how you pronounce that. Anyway, Laurel, as one might imagine, becomes famous overnight and is honored by the United Planets, but... She knows that no amount of awards and accolades will bring her parents back. Laurel's fame doesn't escape Zaryan, who sends assassins to kill her. They're not successful, but her cousin Eltro 
knows that she can't be protected forever. So he relocates her to uh, relocates her to Earth with a new name and a disguise. Between those things and the superpowers which she'll develop under Earth's yellow sun, she should be as safe as she possibly can be. In short order, Laurel gets contacted by Saturn Girl, the Legionnaire formerly known as Triplicate Girl but is now referred to as Triad for reasons I can't say I fully understand, and Phantom Girl, and invited to try out for the Legion. I mean, let's face it guys, the Legion's gonna offer an added layer of protection from the Coons for her, so there's really no reason for her to not join up with them. At the tryout, she's instantly smitten with Brainiac 5. She tries her best for the tryout, but she quickly succumbs to lead poisoning. Brainy's just barely able to create a modified lead serum, which is a permanent cure for the poisoning. She's welcomed into the Legion, and literally her first assignment is to help the Legion track down Doyle Brand. Doyle's linked up with Kund operatives on Rimbor and, and has arranged... Uh, to provide the Coons with Brand Enterprise's secrets in exchange for passage out of UP jurisdiction. But the stakeout gets shot straight to hell when Brainy gets mistaken for a cop. A shootout in space occurs, and Kooned warriors get the drop on Chameleon Boy and Brainy, but before, they, before either of them can get shot to death, uh, Laurel flies to the rescue and she kicks the shit out of the Coons. The holovid wraps up with Roxas making fun of Laurel, and arguing with his various, uh, various alternate personalities over how best to go about killing her and the rest of the Legion. Roxas's semi-internal, semi-external debate is interrupted by an announcement that EarthGov is launching a manhunt targeted specifically against him. Roxas is something other than happy about this turn of events, which I think is an adequate way of putting it elsewhere. A seemingly sentient blob of green energy is seen streaking through the universe heading toward Wynoth. Meanwhile, back on Earth, Dirk Morgna, the erstwhile sun boy, announces that EarthGov is wrongly being linked to the death of Block at the hands of Roxas, so they've appointed Celeste Rockfish to track Roxas down and bring his sorry ass to justice so that the full truth can come out. Roxas decides that with all the Legionnaires gathering on Wynoth, he should pay a little visit there to the, uh, himself just to see what's up and, you know, maybe kill a couple Legionnaires. Finally, on Wynoth, a semi-naked Salu Digby worries about the meeting that she knows that she's about to have with Rock. She's eaten alive with guilt over her homeworld's war with Rock's homeworld and her near success in killing him during the war. She doesn't even know how she can face him. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, guys, I gotta tell you, the awesomeness of this issue begins, this is no exaggeration, it begins right here on the cover. And for those of you who haven't seen it, and honestly, I would be kind of surprised if anybody is listening to uh, this episode without any kind of familiarity with the five years later specifically, or with the Legion of Superheroes generally, but either way, just in case you haven't seen it, or for that matter, if you're just blanking on it, it's basically this sort of glory shot of Laurel as she's uh, streaking through space, and it looks like she's in the middle of uh, this uh, uh, storm of comets. She's balanced at, on top of a comet, and she's just riding it around through space. She's got her eyes closed, and, you know, every now and then, guys, you, you come across illustrations that perfectly sum up what a given character is all about. And I think that's very much the case here, you know, because you look at this, she's got her eyes closed, 
She's got her arms spread out to the side. She's got a big smile on her face. Like I say, she's got this kind of ballet sort of pose going on as, as she's standing on top of this, uh, this uh, comet-looking thing. And you can almost figure that this is what Laurel does for fun. And I just really like this. Like I say, it says so much about Laurel, so much about who she is. And you kind of get the idea that, like, this is kind of relaxing for her. And that just, like I say, I mean, it says a lot about her. So anyway, getting into page one. Uh, and then also into page two, uh, basically this starts off with Roxas. He's, he, he's in a library. He's obviously searching for the Laurel Gand Holovid and he's basically, his altars are basically talking to each other out loud. And so one of the things that I just sort of like about Roxas is the fact that yes, he has these altars and yes, they, I'm not sure who the sickest one of them all is, but their dialogue with each other is not necessarily exclusively internal. It's very, very often it can be external. It can be done out loud. It doesn't just happen inside his mind silently, you know, it's actually done out loud at times. And I just, maybe I just never noticed this before, but for some reason, or maybe I just wasn't fully eh, aware of it, but for whatever reason, this is, I don't know, this was just sort of an eye-opening moment, you know? This was kind of like an aha moment, you know, th that come around sometimes in comics where something that maybe should have been obvious to you long ago, or at least sooner, now it makes a little bit more sense to you. So, anyways. Another little bit of business. Uh, this is kind of getting near to the end of page one and then leading over into page two. There's this, it's made clear that Roxas is in the children's section of whatever library or video rental shop or whatever the fuck this is. And he's in the children's section. And I guess it sort of makes sense that these these videos about the Legion would be in that section. It kind of adds up. I'm, we're going to be getting into that a little bit more when I discuss the next to last page of this issue. But it just sort of makes sense that they would be there. You know, these videos about the Legion would be there. So so that adds up. So when a kid of, I don't even know what alien race this is supposed to be, but uh, there's this little green-skinned kid that comes back to the kid section. He has the, the Laurel Gand Holovid, which goes a long way towards, towards explaining why Roxas can't find it. And it you get the impression at the top of page two that now that Roxas has the the video in his possession, he's going to kill this kid just for the hell of it. And the thing about this is nobody reading this issue would put it past Roxas to do that. He's a psychotic killer. Why would a small child like this, perfectly innocent kid, well, why would he be safe? And so you're thinking, oh my God, this is, this is like really sick. And it eventually comes out this, again, this is page two, panel eight. Roxas says to himself, Giving a little snot like that, 10 credits, can you believe it? When I was that age, we were thrilled to get 25 decicredits a week. And you you realize, no, he didn't kill the kid. He actually paid him what at least one of Roxas's altars believes is an exorbitant price for the Laurel Gand Holovid. But the kid probably went home safe, sound, and a little bit richer. And I just kind of like the, the switch up to that because it's his interaction with the kid is played so ambiguously that 
at least for a minute, yeah, you can kind of believe that Roxas killed the kid. I mean, God knows he's certainly capable of it, so it wouldn't be that big of a surprise if he did. And just here again, I don't know if I've gushed a whole lot over uh, the GIF's art lately. And honestly, it's because there hasn't really been very much GIF art, uh, either in issue number eight or right here in issue number nine. There have been a couple of pages, but it's not, it's... There's he he basically has written the the framing devices of the stories or of the issues, but he hasn't really done full pencils. You know, it's been a while. I think issue seven was the last one before all these fill-ins and stuff. So anyway, uh, so there's my point is there hasn't been much of a much of an opportunity to gush about the gifts art, but what little of it we get right here on pages one and two, and then closer to the end of uh, of this issue. I just eat this up with a spoon. I just love the the tone of it, the 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 style and the mood and everything. God, this is just so so. Anyway, uh, getting into page uh, three and then kind of moving forward from there, we get into the more of the blood and guts, somewhat literally, but we get more into the blood and guts of Laurel's background. And one of the things that, if it wasn't clear before, it should be clear now. Laurel. Laurel Gand, as a character, she's basically a substitute for uh, Kara Zor-El. That's, that's pretty much it. You know, she's... Her function in the Legion of Superheroes going forward is intended to be as a... Uh, she's intended to be a replacement for Kara Zor-El. But as the story progresses, we're gonna... We're gonna implicitly discover that, you know what? Kara Zor-El is not the only character that Laurel Gand is replacing, but, well, actually I'm tempted to, to tease it and just leave, leave it at that, but fuck it, I'll just go ahead and, and get into it. <clears throat> we eventually discover that Laurel Gand is, like I say, she's not just a Supergirl's uh, replacement, she's also somewhat of a Monel replacement, too, because the thing that you guys need to keep in mind is that Valor is now the inspiration for the Legion in this, the Glorithverse, right? So when she shows up later in the issue wearing a very Monel type of costume, guys, there's a reason for that, you know? Not just the fact that she's she comes from a domed colony, kind of, sort of like Argo City, but not. She doesn't just replace Supergirl, she somewhat replaces Monel as well. And that's something that tends not to get talked about a whole lot any time that the Five Years Later Legion gets discussed. <coughs> hmm. Excuse me. Sorry about that, guys. Anyway, uh, I don't think I've ever sneezed on a podcast before. Well, whatever. Anyway, maybe that's only interesting to me. So, getting into the story, uh, page three and then getting into page four, the Coons make their move in, on the uh, Rickliff 4 station. And there's a little bit of a, I don't know if this is a, a Batman homage, or at least if it's an intentional Batman homage, but Laurel, nevertheless, does watch her parents get murdered right in front of her. Now, we've all, it's, it's already been established in previous issues that Laurel has a serious mat on when it comes to the Coons. And yeah, the feeling is mutual, but you get the idea that yeah, their grudges may be linked to one another, but it, this isn't this isn't just a meaningless rivalry. The Coons have, or at least think that they have, a, a valid reason for uh, hating Laurel and trying to kill her. 
And Laurel unquestionably has valid reasons for hating the, the coons right back. And we get it pretty much right here on page four. The first two panels, her, her parents get shot and that would be enough for most people to hate the coons for the rest of their lives. So anyway, another thing that I kind of like, and this is getting to the bottom of, of page four, the narration from the Laurel Gand Holovid provided by Laurel herself this, again, this is kind of an, uh, an insightful character moment. The narration says, I suddenly found something I didn't know I had. Courage. Because at this point, she's the only one in the immediate vicinity who's left alive. You get the idea that this is the, the main bridge of Rickliff 2 and what few people were there. All but Laurel just got shot to death by uh, the uh, Coon infiltrators. And so Laurel is pretty much standing alone here. And so when she says that she found something that she didn't know that she had, namely courage, yeah, that becomes pretty apparent really quickly because she locks the Kund commandos onto the main bridge. <clears throat> and then from the auxili uh, auxiliary uh, control room, she basically locks the, the Kunds out of the main system in the main control room, reactivates uh, Daxum's defenses, and then I don't know if this is an, an automated process or if there's a, a, a Daxamite hand somewhere that's guiding the uh, defense systems, but either way, the, the, the Kund fleet gets wiped out in pretty short order. And as Laurel herself says, there really aren't very many survivors. In fact, it's actually right here on page six that she says, the Kund fleet was decimated. Maybe 10% of the ships escaped. Uh, escaped. Thousands of prisoners were, were taken, but among those who escaped was Zarya. And, you know, I kind of have to wonder, It's maybe it's a bit too much for one issue to get into, but what are the geopolitical ramifications of this? Because Daxum is, I would imagine, a sovereign star system. They, as far as I know, are a member in good standing of the United Planets. What are the UP's thoughts on the Coons trying to make a play against against uh, Daxon. And this issue doesn't really do a whole lot to tell us about that. Now, again, that is not a criticism. When you're writing uh, a movie or a TV show or a comic book, a novel, just whatever, you don't necessarily have the time or the space to explore every single idea that you have. But I can't believe that something like this was done in a vacuum and there were no consequences to the Coons for what they tried to do to Daxum. And let's face it, the Daxamites that they killed. So I don't know. Either way though, and this is uh, getting into page seven, we continue with Laurel's story and she talks about how she cried during the UP ceremony that honored her parents. And then also the conversation that she has with her cousin Eltro Gand, who basically talks about relocating her to Earth. And it's like this poor girl, I mean, bad enough all right that that she lost her parents bad enough that she's been made rightly or wrongly sort of a media spectacle bad enough that the 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 coons are now gunning for her and they're not going to stop until she's dead now she has to leave she's i don't even think she's on rickliff 2 at this point i think she's basically living with uh eltro gand on the planet daxon well now she's got to leave the only family that she probably has left the only home that she's ever known. 
so that she can live among strangers. I mean, yeah, Eltro is doing this to protect her. He wants to save her life. But it's like at the same time, I mean, this poor girl, you know? And so, anyway, I don't want to beat this to death, but it's it's just sad, you know? It's hard not to not to really sympathize, you know, with, with Laurel. I mean, here she is. She, she did something that she knew was the right thing to do, and she wouldn't necessarily be completely out of line if she almost thought that she was being punished for it, you know? So, anyway... Then after that, this is getting into page nine, she has her little meeting with uh, with Saturn Girl, Phantom Girl, and the Legionnaire formerly known as Triplicate Girl, but is now known as Triad. And I'm gonna be completely honest with you guys, as I've said before, I don't consider myself to be this huge Legion of Superheroes expert. You know, I don't think the fact that, like just the fact that you enjoy reading a certain comic book or watching a certain TV show or movie or reading a certain series of books or just fucking whatever. The simple fact that you enjoy doing that, I don't know if that necessarily means that you get to call yourself a fan of that thing. You understand? To me, or at least maybe not an authority on the subject. If you want to call yourself an authority about something, you really do need to know it inside and out, you know? I, do, I would feel somewhat comfortable calling myself an authority on Superman comics, at least up to a certain point. But when it comes to other characters, such as Green Lantern or hell, you know, what we're talking about right now, Legion of Superheroes, I don't consider myself to be some kind of special authority on that. So all of this is kind of a long way of saying I don't really understand why the character was renamed Triad following this, you know, into the Glorithverse thing that we're doing right now. I don't really understand why that would be. Because if you're trying to move away from all the lad and last names and all that, well, I still don't really understand that. I mean, that is a valid part of Legion history. I can see where those names maybe sound a little quaint or whatever by modern standards circa 1990 but whatever you know we can i guess we can roll with it but the character that we're talking about here triplicate girl it was triplicate girl not triplicate lass so why call her triad if it's okay to call saturn girl saturn girl and phantom girl phantom girl why is only triplicate girl being renamed here and i'm not saying that as a rhetorical question to imply some kind of condemnation of that decision or criticism or anything like that. This is a kind of a sincere question. I don't get that. And before recording this episode, I actually spent some time last night searching around online. I just kind of Googled this and just wanted to see what I can come back with and didn't really find anything specific. Nothing that would explain why Triplicate Girl has been renamed Triad. So... If any of you have any insight on that, uh, let me know, because believe me, I'm all ears. So anyway, getting into uh, page 10, we see we see Laurel in her sort of Monel mock-up uniform, and she's she's basically getting ready to try out for the Legion. And you can tell that, again, she is something of a Supergirl replacement in this new continuity that we're dealing with. Well, Supergirl had a thing going with Brainiac 5 at one point, so why shouldn't Laurel? And indeed, at least for a time, she does seem to have a thing going with him. Now, obviously, we find out that whatever happened, happened, and it didn't exactly work out between 
Brainy and Laurel because, again, at the end of issue eight, we find out that she's had, she's given birth to Ron Vidar's daughter. So, hmm. Anyway, but at least for right now, in her teenage years, she's, well, she's smitten with Brainy. That, that much is clear. So, another thing that I kind of, I kind of lament about this revision that was forced upon the Legion is that back when, back when it was Supergirl shacked up with Brainiac 5, I kind of liked the idea of different generations of the Superman family interacting with each other in sort of different ways. Yes, Superman and Brainiac were enemies, but subsequent generations, specifically Brainiac 5 and Laurel, and uh, I can't say Laurel, uh, subsequent generations, specifically Brainiac 5 and uh, Kara Zor-El, they have very different relationships with one another than Superman had with, well, in this case, his enemy. And I kind of like that. And obviously we lose that by necessity in this in, in this new continuity that we're dealing with here, the Glorithverse. That's not anybody's fault, at least not anybody to do with Legion of Superheroes. That's really not anybody's fault, but that is nevertheless what happened. So anyway, just uh, give me a second here <clears throat> while I uh, open up my orange vanilla Coca-Cola. I'm also going to get a couple drags off uh, off of my box here. <clears throat> anyway, so... Uh, moving right along here, page 11, Supergirl, or, wow, even I'm slipping now. Uh, Laurel uh, goes for it in her tryout for uh, the Legion, and she unearths some long-lost Earth artifacts, but in the process, she instantly hits a this sort of deposit of lead and almost as instantly succumbs to it. And so what Brainiac is able to do, because this is just how fucking brilliant the guy is, he basically creates a new lead uh, anti-lead serum based on Laurel's existing anti-lead serum. But unlike the serum that she's been taking in the past, this is like legit cure. Whereas before, what she had was more of a treatment. What Brainiac 5 gives her is an authentic cure. And that's... I don't know. That, that just... It's a good character moment for both... Uh, Brainy, and for Laurel. So, and there is this kind of awkward bit of business right here on page 13, um, panel three specifically. Well, at least it culminates in panel three, but basically Laurel comes to in the infirmary and Brainiac 5 just basically repeats everything that I just told you guys. And Laurel's answer to this, you know, the permanent cure, her answer to this is, but how do I thank you? And... Brainiac 5 even starts to answer, well, by, uh, and you, I don't know, it's, we are talking about teenagers here, so part of me is kind of thinking his answer is going to be a, a, a variation on, 
But before, whatever his answer would have been, it gets interrupted by Cosmic Boy saying, by agreeing to join him at the induction ceremonies. And it's just this kind of what the fuck. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. All right. Maybe I'm wrong. But I think Rock Crin is probably swift enough on the uptake to know that he maybe should, if not leave the room, which wouldn't be a bad idea, but if not leave the room, at least just stay out of the way, keep his mouth shut, and all of that. So, I don't know. Raucous interruptus, I suppose. Anyway, he makes it clear, though, that her tryout was successful and she's joining up with the Legion. And, again, this is a logical thing for Laurel to want to do, to want to join the Legion. It's logical for the Legion to want her to join. Everybody involved has legit reasons for wanting Laurel on the team. So, story-wise, it makes sense. What doesn't make sense, this, again, this is page 13, panel 2. I don't know what the fuck is going on with Laurel's face here. It looks like she's got a really small iris in her left eye and a regular-sized one in her right eye. So, what the fuck? I don't know what this is about. I mean, it can't possibly be some wonky perspective thing. I don't know what what the deal is here, but it's damned weird looking. So, anyways. Moving right along, though, Laurel instantly gets whisked into a, uh, her very first Legion of Superheroes meeting, and they outline what their next mission is going to be on the planet Rimbor. And I kind of like the fact that the the Doyle brand element of this stakeout ties in so conveniently with the last issue, which was all about how the Legion came together and, in part, how Doyle attempted to assassinate RJ. Well, this is now his comeuppance. And so this includes Doyle Brand, against whom the Legion understandably has a bit of a grudge, and it includes uh, the Coons, against whom Laurel Gand has... A completely understandable grudge as well, and that their missions, in a way that can only happen in fiction, their missions just perfectly align with one another, and I just like that. To me, it's the sign of good writing that something like that is noticeable, but it's not intrusive. You're not rolling your eyes thinking, oh shit, here we go. You know, it. I just, I like that. It works for me. So, anyway, so after that, this is on uh, page 14, the stakeout goes south when Brainiac 5 gets mistaken for a cop. Uh, the I don't know if this chick is a hooker or, or, or what. She misses the forest but hits the trees. I mean, he's definitely, he's definitely law enforcement, but I don't know, actually. Is he a cop? I mean, because he, he is a member of the Legion, and so he's a law enforcement official of... Uh, some kind of persuasion, but I don't know. It, offhand, I don't actually know if the Legion has been deputized by the science police or not. That's actually a... That's actually kind of a good question. So, pardon me while I vamp for time, see if I can maybe look in issue number eight and see what I can come up with. Because you never... I mean, you, you, you never know. There could be an answer in here that as I vamp for time, uh, could 
give me the very answer that I'm seeking. And so, okay, so it looks like what I was remembering from issue eight, this is on page 17, panel one. The Legion was officially uh, recognized by the United Planets, but that's hardly the same thing as being deputized by the science police. So yeah, I think it would be safe to say that the space hooker on, on Rimbor, she had the right ha-ha, but the wrong ho-ho when it came to Brainy. He's not a cop. I mean, he's law enforcement for sure, but he's not really a cop per se. And so anyway, but whatever happens, happens. The whole stakeout ends up getting shot straight to hell. And uh, Doyle Brand makes a run for it, along with, I assume, his uh, Kuhn associates. Uh, they zoom out to outer space while La uh, Laurel uh, takes it upon herself to uh, handle a bomb situation, uh, planet side. That's on page 15. And also page 15. I just kind of like this. This is uh, just kind of a neat little bit of world building. Somewhere, I assume, near Rimbor, uh, the, the Holovid narration says, The chase was almost over when they came upon one of the eeriest sights in the galaxy, the Great Shrine Asteroids, a series of beautifully carved asteroids left behind by a long-dead civilization. And these are these look like basically giant chiseled heads shaped out of asteroids that are just floating around in space. And it raises all kinds of questions about what kind of alien race could do this, or for that matter, would do this. Are these just random faces, or are these uh, faces that are important to the to the history somehow of this long lost alien uh, civilization? And it's just kind of fun to think about, you know? I mean, this issue doesn't really provide us with any answers because, again, long dead civilization. But it's just it's just good world building, and I, I just sort of dig that. So, anyway. Moving right along, the Coons get, get the drop on, on, uh, on Cam and Brainy. And then on page 17, L Laurel comes swooping to the rescue... And I just kind of like this. This is a just a, a, a kind of funny, or kind of fun, I should say, just sort of superhero moment, just a very comic book kind of moment where the hero swoops in and, and saves the innocent victim from gunfire. Oh, no, it's the hero. Oh, we're fucked. Oh, make a run for it, you know. And... That's kind of what happens right here. It's uh, the, the Kund warriors say, Gand, it's Laurel Gand. Oh, no, the enemy of our people. She'll, you know, and I just, I just kind of, I just dig this. This is just so good. Now, I got to be honest with you guys. The, the artist, the fill-in artist for this issue, who's uh, doing all this flashback stuff. This is uh, Paris Collins. Nowhere fucking near. Uh, the gifts level. This is just kind of a wonky line style, and at times it just looks kind of amateurish and cartoony, awkwardly done. It's just weird looking. And, I mean, it's not wholesale bad. I'll say that. You know, Paris Collins's art is not wholesale bad, but I don't know. When, when you've gotten so used to seeing the gifts art, seeing a fill-in artist is... I don't know, anticlimactic, maybe. I don't know. It's disappointing. No offense to Paris Collins. I mean, I doubt Paris Collins is listening to this, but in the event that you are, no offense to you. I'm just saying that 
in a perfect world, I would have liked to have seen this done by the GIF. However, having said all of that, let me get another sip off my Coke here. Having said all of that, what I do like is the the pages that are drawn by Paris Collins, they're a little bit more modern types of uh, story layouts. Makes sense? Uh, the, basically, what modern looked like in the late 80s slash early 90s, there is no nine-panel grid going on here. These are more, like I say, uh, modern for the time, sort of conventional co uh, uh, comic book page layouts. And that does provide a, a kind of nice stylistic sort of uh, shift. It's a difference in tone between uh, the modern day era, the five years later era, versus the Legion's past. And I do, I do kind of appreciate the uh, dramatic effects of that. So anyway, getting into page 18, basically what's going on here is Laurel makes her infatuation with uh, Brainy. Well, she makes it very clear to him, put it that way. And I guess what I like about this is the Holovid goes on to say that, yes, she and Brainy have been seeing a lot more of each other, if you know what I mean. You know, they are dating and all that stuff. So obviously this is an old video. It's a bit out of date because, like I say, the chick has given birth to Ron Vidar's baby. So obviously she and Brainy are done now. And so I kind of like the fact that this video is a little bit out of date. It's just nice attention to detail because you would think... If somebody didn't have their thinking cap on, there would be some kind of narration saying that, unfortunately, there was trouble in paradise, and Laurel Gand was later known to have uh, shacked up with Ron Vidar and given birth to their daughter. You know, the fact that the video is, or the whole of it is out of date, it, it doesn't include that bit of business that Brainy and Laurel broke up and then, and that she ended up marrying Ron Vidar. I, to me, that's not a bug. That's a feature. You know, I like that uh, about the story. So anyway, that pretty much takes us into page 19, which is uh, that itself takes us to back into the modern day, quote unquote, the five years later era. Roxas finishes watching the Holovid, and it's here that he discovers that he's now the target of an EarthGov manhunt. And his reaction to this is, God, I just love it. He says... EarthGov to hunt down me, I, they, but it, they, and I thought those freaks were my friends. And I just kind of like the fact he has just such this, this immature response to it. It's, it's like, number one, guy, you're dealing with not just criminals, but let's face it, uh, kind of anonymous, uh, conquerors, uh, you know, obviously they were not allies of Earth. What made you think they would be allies of yours for any great length of time? I just kind of like the the immaturity of all this. This is how a small child would react to finding out that they'd been betrayed. And it's just this... I just like it. It's I, Look, I realize that Roxas is just a sick, demented fuck. But it's like, at the same time, he has these just funny outbursts at times. He's just a really good, really well-rounded character. And I just, I just dig moments like this. And yes, it, it is very amusing. It's, it's funny. So anyway, uh, there's really not a whole lot to say about page 20 other than the fact there's this giant green blob of energy that's floating around in outer space. 
and making its way towards Wynoth. So I guess having gotten that out of the way, if it wasn't getting into page 21, if it wasn't clear before, it should be now, that Dirk Morgna really isn't on the side of the angels here. And guys, this was a pretty big risk to take with with Sunboy, slowly vilifying him in, in, in such a way that he basically, after a certain point, loses the reader's loyalty. Now, there's something that's that's coming in the future with Sunboy that, frankly, I doubt I'm ever going to deal with uh, because I plan to wrap, wrap up all this Legion of Superheroes five years later discussion. I plan to wrap all that up with issue number 24, the last issue of The Quiet Darkness uh, storyline. So I'm not going to get into uh, the, I guess, the ins and outs of Dirk Morgna, his history, and the kind of sympathetic light that he's presented in in issue number, I believe it's issue 28, where you find out that Sunboy was kind of operating behind the eight ball from the get-go. He, anyway, I, what I'm saying is you, you, you get the sense that he didn't exactly have the best role models in his life. And so in some ways it's a miracle that he, that he turned out as well as he did. So not really the point. The point is it was a serious risk to vilify him in this way. And it's, this is just one of the things that I really admire about the five years later era is that there are all of these risks and chances that are that are being taken because guys let's face it i'm among legion fans i think it would be safe to say that just about every legionnaire is somebody's favorite legionnaire block i don't know so much about but other other legionnaires they do tend to have their fans and to vilify somebody's favorite legionnaire like this it, it stands to reason that there would be at least one turncoat legionnaire. And I don't know. It's just, to me, this is just a, a, a really brave, very risky, creative decision. And I think it works great, but then I never had any particular loyalty to Sunboy anyway. But my point is, this was a huge risk to take. And I'm I, for one, am glad that that the gift took it. So anyway, that... That basically is that. So anyway, uh, page 21 ends with Roxas deciding, you know what? I think it's time that I go to Wynoth myself and kill a couple of Legionnaires. So that pretty much is that. Uh, page 22, I kind of talked about this uh, almost at length in the summary, just because there's really not much happening on this page that isn't easy to summarize. But it's basically uh, Salu Digby on Wynoth, uh, she's basically shitting bricks over the fact that she's about to meet uh, Rock for the first time in a really long time. And the last time that they were in any kind of proximity to one another, she nearly killed him in the Imsk uh, Brawl War. You know, she nearly killed him. And obviously that's just eating her alive. And I mean, her remorse, her guilt, her shame over that, it's it's just so so palpable and one of the things that really makes this page work for me is again page 22 this is panel six uh well panels six and seven you can see tears uh coming out of her eye but panel eight this is this is a salu from behind and you can see that she's basically broken down or at least at the well at the very least she's 
she's dipping her head forward. You know, she's bowing her head. And there are a lot of different ways you can interpret this. You know, is she, you know, before she, she had kind of watery eyes. Is she now weeping? You know, is she just gone completely crackers, just totally lost it, uh, out of control with regret, and is just crying her eyes out? Is that what's happening here? Uh, is she maybe uh, praying to God, you know, for, for strength, for insight, for wisdom, for, God knows, for forgiveness? You know, what, and I, I, I like panels like this because it's so open. This is my point. Panels like this, page 22, panel 8, it's open to interpretation what exactly her reaction to this is, you know, what is she doing? And it's always brave when you see something like this in a movie, you can't see a character's face, you don't know completely how how they're reacting or what they're doing, and it's wide open to interpretation. However you want to view this is probably going to be pretty defensible. I mean, you're probably going to need to justify it a bit if you think she's smiling. But what is she doing? Is she, like I say, has she just completely lost it, you know, lost all control, and now she's just crying her eyes out? Or is she gritting her teeth and trying to search for inner strength somehow? Or like I said a second ago, is she praying to God, you know, for the strength to get through this meeting? Is she praying to God for forgiveness? I mean, like, what is she doing here? And the point is, it's not made clear. That's why I like it. It's so wide open. It's it's so ambiguous that you can project whatever emotional reaction onto her that you want. And pretty much all of it's probably going to be defensible in some way or another. It's all going to be at least kind of valid. So anyway, and that is, that's the official end of the issue. But we get a little bit, uh, we get a couple of uh, text pages here. Nothing to write home about too much. But this is just, again, some interesting world building that's going on here. This is a very old... Like, maybe I'm dating myself here a little bit. I don't, but for you, like, lower spectrum Gen X listeners or upper spectrum millennials, do you remember those, those teeny bopper magazines from the old days, like Tiger Beat and Bop and all those other ones that were, that would have all those uh, pretty boy celebrities on them for, uh, I don't know, like junior high girls to, to buy and then they hang up the posters. You, you guys remember that? That's kind of what, I guess technically this is page 23, that's kind of what this text page here sort of reminds me of. We're looking at, <clears throat> I don't even know what else to call it, except a sort of like an iPad looking thing here. This is, it, it, you get the idea that this is basically kind of like a, a Tiger Beat equivalent, specifically for the Legion of Superheroes. And this is pretty old, guys pretty old it's uh dated april 2974 so uh we're getting we're going back into the past here a little bit all of these letters that are sent in from uh legion fans from across the uh from across the galaxy like in universe right so the one of them says okay here's here's a good one i absolutely adore brainiac 5 but my friend said he's dating laurel gand am i too late Signed, Freedom Gale, Brookline, Rimbor. And then the answer is, You haven't missed out. Yet, anyway. Yes, Brainy and Laurel are very good friends, and they, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's just this, not, it's almost like Legion-themed fanzine slash teeny bopper sort of magazine from the really old days. 
and I just like this is just good this is more good world building you know and honestly I, I mean I guess we're gonna find out here in a minute but I honestly would not be surprised if Freedom Gale, Charlene Sopowitz, Eddie Jones uh, and some of these others if these are actual Legionnaire or, or rather the Le actual Legion fans that uh, uh, the beer bombs are, are uh, name-checking in uh, in this issue I wouldn't be surprised to find out that these are actual people, you know, but in universe, this is, like I say, kind of like those, uh, those, uh, teeny bopper magazines for, for, uh, junior high girls back in the old days. That's very much what this reminds me of, you know, and it, to me, it, it makes a lot of sense that the Legion, number one, that they would be popular with, with teenagers all through the galaxy. And number two, they are celebrities. I mean, they are bona fide celebrities. And I don't know if previous, basically anything prior to the five years later era, if anything prior to five years later presented the Legionnaires as celebrities. But either way, this is still a sign that somebody, I know not who, but somebody definitely had their thinking cap on when it comes to the Legion's place in the universe. So anyway. So uh, that is 2974. Moving a bit further ahead into 2994, this is basically a, 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 an op-ed of sorts, and it's it's basically criticizing uh, certain United Planets policies, specifically EarthGov and goings on with the Coons, and that's all kind of interesting. Again, it's more sort of neat world building, but I don't really feel like getting too much into it here. And that honestly, that's pretty much it for this issue. So. Now, as I've said in previous issues, not so much for issue number eight, but uh, for previous issues, I have read a little bit from uh, Tom Beerbaum's It's Okay, I'm a Senator live journal. And I want to do a little bit of that here. I, I, I don't want to steal his thunder and read his entire, uh, his entire uh, journal entry here. Um, I think it's just kind of cheap to do that, number one. Number two, I don't really think it's it makes for such riveting listening to sit here listening to me read something that you can just as easily read for yourself why listen to me if you can read it for yourself am, am i right so <clears throat> all right so the uh, uh beer bombs beer bombs uh live journal entry here it uh, kicks off as follows in our previous entry, I gave a pretty detailed discussion of how this origin of Laurel Gand issue came about. They were going to stretch our fill-in uh, for issue number eight, which retold the Legion's origin, so that it would provide two issues worth of fill-in. For a variety of reasons, we didn't like that plan, and we talked them into letting us do a separate story, which told Laurel Gand's origin. It was well-timed, and that Laurel had just been introduced in number six and was creating quite a bit of interest. And while it now seems like ancient history, remember that we just altered the timeline in number five, and at this point, people could mostly only guess what had transpired in the Legion's past in this new timeline. We tried to give Laurel an origin that contained elements of the Supergirl history, but that were clearly her own. While this seemed like the obvious way to go, we probably would have done ourselves a big favor by just, by just doing a completely new story. Editor Michael Urey and the, uh, Keith, meaning, uh, meaning the GIF, Editor Michael Urey and Keith 
weren't very pleased when our script included countless references to the early Supergirl appearances as reference for the artist. Michael and Keith didn't want the story to look like a juvenile comic of the late 50s slash early 60s, nor did Michael relish Xeroxing countless panels out of old issues. In retrospect, I understand their perspective, but at the time, I wasn't very pleased and I remember I actually got a little annoyed with Keith when he told me he'd given Michael the okay to just skip uh, sending the references to the artist. I think it's the only time I've, I had even mildly heated words with Keith, and in retrospect, I have to say I was probably in the wrong. Anyway, and so it just sort of goes on from there. But I guess what I like about the five years later uh, journal entries is just these little peeks behind the scenes, finding out the whys and wherefores of what happened, why it happened, and all of that sort of fun stuff. Uh, basically, though, we are getting two fill-ins in a row here. Issues number eight, and then here again, issue number nine. And I didn't really talk about issue number eight when I was covering issue number eight, oddly enough. So, the, But the reason for all of this, what... Uh, Tom Bierbaum wrote in his live journal, he says, this was, and again, he's talking specifically about issue number eight, not number nine. But what he says is, this was the first fill-in issue Mary and I plotted and scripted, and it was a little historic on a couple of fronts. For one thing, it was the first time we worked with Chris Sprouse, with whom we'd end up uh, doing the majority of our Legionnaires issues. For another, they got Kurt Swan to pencil half the cover, which you guys know, blah, 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 let's see. Yeah, here, yeah, here's the part I wanted to talk about. Uh, this issue is kind of an odd collection of characters and themes. I think the starting point was that Keith had fallen behind schedule and a fill-in issue was required. Michael Yuri had just come on board as editor in place of Mark Wade, and with all the complaints circulating about how complicated and confusing the series was, Michael and Keith thought a retelling of the origin was a good idea. And that was especially wise, considering that we really had brought on a fair number of brand new Legion readers with number one on this new series. And it just sort of goes from there. Basically, uh, the GIF was having trouble with hitting his deadlines. He was starting to get behind schedule. And so the idea of these two fill-in issues in number eight and number nine, obviously we're talking about number nine here, the idea with these uh, two fill-in issues with number eight and number nine was to give the GIF a little bit of a breather. So he did a little bit of stuff with these two issues, but for the most part, these are the beer bombs and others sort of taking the lead for a couple of issues. Now, yes, it probably stands to reason that... Uh, well, actually, not that it stands to reason. It, it, it It's actually very true that... The GIF still had a little bit of involvement with these issues, and as much as he he drew a few pages, but for the most part, he's not really the the creative point man on issues number eight and number nine. And so, I I guess what I like about this is the fact that this is not this is not really a, an auteur comic. This really is a a collaborative effort. Where, you know what, sometimes the GIF gets his way. Other times, other people get their way. And I I don't know if that necessarily always makes for, for a better product. But in this case, I do think it does benefit the final product. I mean, I find that to be 
virtually undeniable. So anyway, and so that's pretty much it for the end of this issue. Now, what I promised uh, starting in uh, my last episode was that I was going to uh, uh, be a bit more intentional about reading feedback and trying to get caught up on that. So what I'm doing right now, it may sound like I'm actually trying to set the table on uh, an email that I want to read, but what I'm actually doing is vamping for time and uh, basically trying to read through my Gmail box real quick, trying to figure out which email it is that I want to read so that you guys are going to have some feedback to listen to, but all the while explaining all of this to you in a way that hopefully doesn't sound boring and it makes it sound like there's really no, there's no real dead air going on here and, and all of that. So I'm not really sure how, how, how good a job I'm, I'm actually doing with all of that. But in any case, the, uh, the feedback for today, this comes from my old friend, Fanboy MS Prime. Guys, this was dated November the 4th, 2014. All right. So I'm definitely behind and uh, Prime, I'm doing everything I, I possibly can to get caught up. You know, this is me making a good faith effort, just like I promised you that I would, uh, well, promised everybody really that I would. So anyway, but uh, hopefully this is going to get me, well, at least one step closer to, uh, to, to getting caught up. So anyway, so that's that stuff. So anyway, uh, Prime writes, oh, and the title of this is More Smallville. Uh, Prime writes, okay, on to season two of Smallville. And to go way off topic, given you mentioned Loeb, you ever read the Cable story where he had Cable, Domino, Kane, Garrison, and Copycat team up with the Marvel-created Micronauts characters to fight Psycho Man? That's the first place I learned of those Micronauts uh, characters, actually. And to put your email on pause for just a minute here, Prime, no, actually, um, honestly, when it comes to anything to do with Marvel... I haven't really strayed too far off the beaten path. I mean, I don't know if I can necessarily call Squadron Supreme off the beaten path, but generally, at least when it comes to Marvel, you know, sort of oddball titles like Micronauts, no, it's not that I don't like them or or don't care. It's just never really had a chance, never really made time, never really got around to reading those comics, so... Anyway, Prime goes on to say, expect this email to have a lot of tangents on the various comics I've enjoyed. And I had this amusing mental image of on a summer break, Clark fights alongside Bruce Wayne against some threat. It could be anything really, but I'd probably have it be hush as Clark would likely consider, likely would consider, quote, well, when we were kids, I saw him bludgeon a man with an oar that, uh, that, that annoyed him, unquote to be kind of a hint that Thomas Elliot is not quite right in the head. And I'm going to put this email on pause here, Prime, and say that obviously it never happened. And to be, to be honest with you, Prime, part of me is actually secretly glad that Smallville never really crossed over, like Smallville the show, never had uh, a, a cameo appearance by Bruce Wayne or by Batman or just whatever. I'm actually kind of happy about that because I don't know. It's not Batman fatigue because I think I'm way past that now, but 
I just kind of like the fact that Smallville is Superman's thing, you know? And there's no pressure to keep bringing Bruce back and bringing him back and bringing him back, you know? Green Arrow can serve more or less the same function as Batman generally would. But in a way that you can... Look, you can get away. You can get away with uh, shortchanging Green Arrow in a, uh, super, in a show that's based on Superman. And I don't think anyone's going to raise too much of a stink about it. But you really can't shortchange Bruce Wayne no matter whose TV show this is. And so if... I guess my point is, if the the showrunners were ever going to incorporate Bruce Wayne uh, into Smallville, it would have to be done in a way that truly does justice to Bruce Wayne. And to do that, you really do have to detract from Clark. And so it's just, it, it very quickly becomes this snowflake that builds into a snowball where you it's almost like we forget why we're ultimately really here. Now, excuse me, Prime, while I get some more vape here. Anyway, Prime goes on to say, next. Mm, sorry. Next. Uh, Clark meets Monel, and they hang out and play video games or such before Monel leaves in his spaceship, or possibly send him to the still zone or some other dimension that doesn't suck as bad as the Smallville Phantom Zone, but it'd be due to the layer of lead in the atmosphere hurting him and not Clark seeing if exposing his friend to kryptonite would hurt him as the town is covered in green K already. Uh, you know, Prime, I'm going to eh, somewhat agree, somewhat disagree with you here. I, I do like the idea of Monel showing up on, on Smallville, um, I mean, I don't have anything in particular against Smallville's Phantom Zone, but you know, hey, whatever. Either way, I, I do, I do kind of wish that Monel and honestly, really, the Legion, number one, that they'd been on the show more, and number two, they, they, they would have arrived earlier. You know, I think it would have been kind of fun in season one or two, or even the mighty season three for Monel individually. And and then, again, separately, some members of the Legion uh, coming back in time uh, to visit Clark, you know. Uh, yes, Season 8 does, they do uh, a, uh, they, I mean, they kind of do that. But the Legion, they only traveled back into the past to to fix, basically to put right what once had gone wrong, Right. And they didn't come back because they're such huge Superman fans. They they basically, they were policing their own, one might say. And so, you know, whatever. I mean, in the end, we got there, so it's not really worth quibbling over too much. But I do wish, like I say, that Monel had had shown up at some point, and then also some members of the Legion had shown up at some point in seasons one two or mighty three or actually you know what fuck it here's an idea maybe even in the dreaded season four right i'm not saying that an adventure with the legion of superheroes and or monel would necessarily redeem the dreaded season four for me but it's like at this point it would definitely change the odds so i can't see anything bad coming out of that so i don't know all in all i mean uh, yeah i i do i do agree with you i 
I wish we could have gotten a, a bit more Legion stuff on Smallville. So, whatever. Anyway, moving right along, Clark writes, Third, Clark ate the ghost pepper pizza and found his breath could make people's eyes water, as those are, if not the most hot peppers on Earth, then they are among them, meaning the most hot peppers on Earth. And Clark finds he likes the taste of those peppers. A week later, Clark gets yanked to Rand by Zeta Beam and teamed up with Adam Strange. The pair using jetpacks and ray guns to battle uh, Blackfire. With Clark taken to the limits, his Blackfire is as, is as powerful as he is physical and can shoot energy blasts. As if that wasn't enough, after saving Ran and on his way back home, Clark is abducted in transit by the Monarch for his interdimensional gladiatorial combat games. I'm going to put this email on pause here and say, yeah, I think there would have... There are some kind of interesting ideas going on there, but ultimately, I think that stuff is a bit too science fantasy. It's maybe a bit too cosmic for what Smallville was in the first five seasons. Now, maybe at some point in the last five seasons, or maybe even just the last season full stop, I could see Smallville maybe getting away with things like Ran and Adam Strange, Blackfire, Monarch, and all that stuff. But I do think it would have been a bit too much for for the show in its first, definitely in its first four seasons, but I would say even its first five seasons. It's just a little bit too high concept for where Smallville was at that time. So anyway, I'm not saying it's bad. If anything, I'm saying it's good. I'm just saying I don't, I would have a hard time seeing that in Smallville before a certain point. So anyway, <clears throat> speaking of things I would have a hard time with, in the uh, Prime goes on to write, In those gladiator games, Clark uh, gets to meet other versions of himself, both as Superman and Superboy. And he also meets at least one version of Connell. He also meets various other versions of the other DC heroes and villains. Clark is definitely rather disgusted by Midnighter, pretty much brutally ripping anything he, uh, ripping anything he fights. But it takes all the heroes working together to get out of Monarch's games. Well... That and Lord Havoc sapping a, uh, some of the former Captain Adam's power for his own use. I want to put this email back on pause and say, yeah, I think this really would have been a no-go zone for Smallville. There really was a pretty clear embargo on anything uh, on showing Clark as Superman, even if it's in the future, even if it's um, maybe even a different actor playing Superman. I just don't think that ever would have happened on Smallville. Uh, just from the standpoint of what you might call an editorial mandate. I don't think it would have been possible to have Superman on the show. As to Superboy, I think there was actually more of a legal mandate going on there because there, this isn't something I've made a, a, a big deal about with my Smallville retrospectives, but I, I do seem to recall there was some kind of lawsuit that went on during the run of Smallville that alleged that basically Smallville is a Superboy show. And so as a result, you know, the Siegel parasites are due certain monies. And then a, a judge eventually ruled, no, this is not a Superboy show. This is a young Superman show. This is, it's basically a Superman show. And so the Seagulls ended up losing, rightly so, I think. But just to avoid that, you know, it would have been, Hard to argue that this isn't a Superboy show if Superboy literally shows up in an episode. I mean, again, I'm not saying this is a bad idea. I'm just saying that, you know, there was, uh, I swear to think, a very serious legal hurdle standing in the way of that. So 
Anyways, um, moving right along, Prime goes on to write, after Clark gets back home, he finds that he finds out that he's only been uh, about it's only been about a day since he got sent to Ram. Clark then finds under under Smallville is some fucked up shit as he finds a city deep under the ground and battles the local legend, the Hollow Men and their uh, master uh, Tanarak. And helping the whatever of steel you want to call Clark is the Phantom Stranger. And in Clark's final adventure of the summer, he teams up with a dog, with a talking dog named Rex, a talking monkey wearing a deerskin hat named uh, Babo, yes, the detective chimp, an ape also able to talk named Sam, who mentally appeared to be a normal guy to people, and also an artist, along with being a private eye. And the most normal uh, of the bunch, Sam's partner in being a private eye, Angel O'Day. Their adventure is to go to Gorilla City and battle Grodd. So yeah, no wonder Clark won't give a crap about Lana's need to know after having that crazy of a summer. <laughs> touche, Prime. Touche. Sorry I went off on different tangents uh, than the Smallville episodes, but... I really haven't much to say on them. The classic Lobo is still around in the DC and you. I, I take the other Lobo, believing he, his is the real deal, to be just what he thinks he is. The main man would disagree with that violently. Why are you dissing Deadpool? Then again, I am a huge fan of, uh, of the Joe Kelly run. Loved Christopher Priest's issue where Deadpool believes he's the son of Loki and tries to steal Thor's hammer. Uh, the Cable and Deadpool series by Fabian Nicieza, and the Deadpool team-up book. I'm going to put the email on pause here, Prime, and say, obviously I don't remember quite what I said about uh, Deadpool in, in that episode that you listened to, but what I'll say is that I've always thought that Deadpool is... I've joked that he's... That, that Deadpool is the comic book for people who don't like comic books. And what I mean by that is... People who don't really respect comics, who don't really uh, get into them as much, they tend to gravitate towards Deadpool, I think, because Deadpool is very self uh, a very self-referential comic, and it's almost like this kind of meta or self-aware, this sort of ironic sort of thing. It's like it gives this type of person intellectual cover, for the fact that, yes, they are, in fact, reading a comic book. And it's like they have to laugh at the fact that this is a comic book. And that's always just sort of bugged me, all right? And that is true, at least, of the uh, of the Daredevil comics that I've uh, just sort of read and flipped through over the years. Prime, don't mistake me for somebody who is a big Deadpool expert, because I would never claim to be a Deadpool expert. I'm just saying that... All this meta stuff and sort of poking fun at the fact that he knows he's in a comic book, I, that just doesn't really work for me. You know, I don't I don't really get into that. And I find, like I say, that the people who do get into that are people who generally don't really like comics. So anyway, make of that whatever you want. So Prime goes on to say, though, given when I literally wrote my own version of Secret Invasion, he just showed up for a single scene while more obscure characters got more screen time shows even I have my limits with the character. And a deep love of the obscure. <laughs> I also noticed uh, you want a Silver Age Superman cartoon and not the safe bet. Then again, it is possible to want both. Given WB uh, getting off their ass and giving Superman a cartoon, period, 
seems to be not a safe bet. As for Crisis on Infinite Earths, that could not work as a 70-minute or so movie. A mini-series of 70-minute uh, movies, perhaps. On the DC new Superman, I don't think the fans of Supergirl have any less ups and downs on what she's been through. And most of Kara's fans are probably shocked that her becoming a Red Lantern was uh, a good thing as she had to deal with the fact deal with the fact as angry and, and unhappy as she was with with all that happened. When she's in a room with other enraged people, it pales quite a bit. With Guy also believing in her, and how can she become a hero like Superman? And yeah, sure. Uh, oh, oh, sorry, I mis misread this. And yeah, not sure why this uh, to be a Batman fan for uh, Batman fan, you must hate Superman insanity has come from. Or for that matter, to, uh, to keep doing their various crisis events when the League is at their weakest and not written to be the people in the center of the mess kicking ass. Seriously, for Infinite Crisis, Bob Harris, yes, that Bob Harris, for the final JLA uh, storyline, turned uh, that the League had shattered to pieces as the story with, the, with characters running off for events of their own books and Donna Troy recruiting characters for her limited series. Actually, it's a, it is a quite good story, and one of the first DC stories I read when I, cam when I cannonballed into the DC Comics pool. Interesting way of putting it, Prime. I know I will be one of the first, or even few, to say that Bob Harris's Avengers run was when I got into comics, and I enjoyed the East and West Coast Avengers team. So I really wanted to see what he'd do with the JLA. In his making a problem, he had on literally having no members able to stick around and turning that into the story was interesting. And the only the only Justice League left in Forever Evil was in a pointless 18-issue storyline of crap. Justice League Dark, if you were wondering, which is more than Stormwatch, aka the Watchers of the Storm, aka the assholes who think they're better than superheroes did as they were rebooted by reality-warping events uh, beings and no shows for the entire Trinity, no shows for the entire Trinity War, and Forever Evil or Forever War, as I like to call it, as both events were basically one massive event. <sighs> Boy, that was a huge sentence. Utterly annoying. DC didn't let Paul Cornell write his entire story for Stormwatch, and let their pride, let their pride lead to their fall on their ass. I tend to keep fandoms at arm's length for me, as otherwise I'd probably uh, tell the biggest jerk there to shut up after a while. The closest thing to the Batman memes and such I'd be willing to go is the fact that in an issue of, ba of uh, Superman Batman that the Dark Knight used a pressure point uh, attack and temporarily paralyzed half of the Major Force possessed Superman's body, which shocked the hell out of Major Force, but Batman having a non-Kryptonite or Red Sun attack that can fuck up a Kryptonian is not going overboard. You can disagree with me on the Batman pressure point attack, but that's just bits of what happened in the comics you and I can, can agree to disagree on. I find I'm a very moderate fanboy with Alan Moore, Grant Morrison, and Batman. Even with the Transformers, I believe I can be a reasonable person, unless you claim the live-action Transformers movies are quality product because they made a shitload of money. In that case, you are delusional and full of shit. Hope you enjoyed this email. Signed. Fanboy Miss Prime, thank you so much for taking the time to write in. And I'm sorry again for how long it's taking to, to get to your feedback, but obviously I'm making good on that now. And Lord knows I'll be making good on, a, uh, good on that in the future. And speaking of the future, I think that's pretty much it for me for right now for this week. But as to next week, what I'm going to be talking about is Legion of Superheroes 
number 10, but that's for next week. So bye everybody. I will see you next week. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens and dozens of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And... Just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>